So how many of you are fans of ancient literature? Anybody enjoy ancient literature of any kind? No? And then no, no fans of the Iliad or the Odyssey? Do you, do you really? Did you like it? Did you take it with Snowden? Oh my word. <laughs> you liked it. Yeah, I love that class. I took it because Joanna made me. But it's I like, liked classical literature the best, like when he got into the other stuff. I didn't okay. Like I thought he was hilarious. He was an interesting guy. Oh, yeah. I, I'd still like to know whether that was a toupee. <laughs> I could never quite figure out his hair. Joanna and I had just started dating, and she was like, we should take this class together. I'm like, uh, it's like, well, because I love you. <laughs> so I took it. it was, I mean, I did okay in it. I, I, some of it's just kind of, you know, literature is kind of weird to me at times. But to think about the Iliad and the Odyssey, or, or maybe, you know, you're more of a Shakespeare fan, or perhaps you're into the documents written by Plato or Aristotle, some of those people. How did how does it that we sitting here in 2020 can have a copy of the Iliad? Because it would have been written. You remember when it was written? Like it's like about as far back as it goes outside the Bible, isn't it? Right, I think so. I think yeah. they're a thousand years back into BC. It feels right. like how is it that we have copies? Somebody copied him. Somebody copied him. Somebody copied him. So, you know, Homer, right? Yeah. Homer sat down, wrote this beautiful work of art, and he only wrote one copy. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to duplicate, right? So he he wrote one copy, one original, which in in uh, textual criticism is called the autograph. So that was the copy. But yet... Is is that copy the only one we have today? Is that autograph? I mean, no, right? I, I sat there in that classroom. I had my own copy, and yeah. I don't know, I'm 20 kids in the school class, had their own copy, and, and we all had our own copy. Do you think that the original version, the original autograph of the Iliad is available today? not right no one knows where the original autograph of the of the Iliad is or probably the Odyssey or the Odyssey or Dante's Inferno or the works of Aristotle the the originals are gone they're lost we don't have them all we have are copies perhaps copies of copies and then eventually, you know, you get into the era of the printing press and people are able to duplicate copies more rapidly and distribute them and so on and so forth. Do you think anyone has ever sat down with a copy, you know, with, of the Iliad and they crack it open and they're like, this is garbage. This isn't the work of Homer. He didn't write this. This is copies of copies of copies. I'm... It's been changed and revised. How do I know that what I'm reading is what Homer actually wrote? I think, is that a question you think anyone has ever asked? You think, you think so? It's possible. I don't know, right? I, I don't know. I mean, I read the Odyssey in high school. Did you? And I don't remember questioning whether it was, you know, I mean, yeah. 16 years old, you don't question it. You just sit there and you... And it may be because, you know, nobody really cares, you know, they're just reading it for the sake of reading it, whether or not Homer wrote that exact phrase or not may not matter. Not saying that those carry the same weight of the Bible, but but the reality of it is, is that's, that's, same process is how we get scripture today, okay? But when we sit down and we talk about how is it that the Bible was distributed, we sometimes get in our mind that that's the only ancient work that has ever been copied and distributed and, and then the originals lost. But the reality of it is, is all ancient literature is the same way, exact same way. 
the works of Aristotle, of Plato, of Socrates, of Josephus, the Jewish historian, of many of the original historians, ancient historians, of, of you name it, right? Of all of that ancient literature, the originals aren't present, and we simply have copies, perhaps maybe copies of copies, perhaps just sometimes fragments of copies, not even the complete copy. And so I think the first thing as we get into this, remember that what we're talking about isn't necessarily unique to the Bible. And just as nobody questions these other works of art and other works of literature, so we shouldn't be too hung up on this process of copying the Bible. And we're going to see that people took a lot of care in copying Scripture. We're going to see that we have a lot of pieces of manuscripts and copies of manuscripts. And when you start comparing copies, you look at them and you start assessing the similarity and the differences, you can be pretty sure what the original document said. Okay, And so that's where we find ourselves here tonight. As we've worked through our... Um, our flowchart here, you remember we starting this, the ideas that are the thoughts that are in God's mind, which he conveys to the human author's minds, which he impressed upon them to write down into the original manuscripts of Bible of the Bible through this process of divine inspiration. And so never forget that the original manuscripts were God inspired. They are a divine product. You know, now they were written as letters, they were written as uh, historical accounts, they were written as songs, they were written as law, and so there's different styles. And so Paul sat down, he wrote letters to someone, he was, he was writing a letter, but it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we have this, these manuscripts, these autographs. Through the first few centuries, at least when you think of the New Testament, um, it goes back even farther than that for the Old Testament, people recognized that certain books were divinely inspired, were divine products, and certain books were not. And so we talked about this process of canonicity. In other words, how are we going to collect these books into what we consider to be those that are divinely inspired? And so at the end of that process, we had 66 books. Remember when we talked about the Old Testament, it was, that was pretty, pretty obvious. There was never much dispute about Old Testament books. And by the time we get to the, to the life of Jesus, it was pretty much universally accepted what the Old Testament books were. And they knew that you know, there had been a period of about 400 years where there were no prophets of God speaking the words of God. And so in that, that dead time after Isaiah or after, after Mike, it was obvious that there's no prophets speaking the words of God, therefore there are new, no works. In the New Testament, we saw that it really didn't take them very long, that you know, they, they would categorize books, is the author someone who was an apostle or had direct contact with an apostle? That's a good place to start. Is the book contradictory to the other works of Scripture? And was it accepted then by the early church? And it was not, if you remember what we said, it was not this picture that's often painted by things like the Da Vinci Code. It wasn't like there was thousands of books and a group of you know, rich aristocrats or church leaders locked themselves away and said, you know what, we need to, we're going to start our own religion, so let's introduce this conspiracy and let's select just these books and we'll exclude all these other books and we're just going to pick these because they... They're the ones that carry the message that we want, right? They're, they're the ones that will create the narrative that we want to create so that we can be in power or, or we can be rich or so on and so forth. In fact, that wasn't the case. Um, the early church was very exclusive, right? They, they knew which books were not a part, and they were very careful not to let anything in that was obvious to not be divinely inspired. And so it was... It was very obvious to them there were four Gospels, and you kind of, a couple Gospels came, came later, like the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Thomas, and it was very clear to them that these are not consistent with what we have. They're not recognized by the church. And if you remember, they kind of had this really tight view, and so the debate was, how do we include 
1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, do we include Hebrews? We don't know what to do with Hebrews because we, we don't really know who the author is. And so they were very exclusive, and then they later started to accept some of these books. Around 325 AD is when the, they, the group met, the scholars met, and said, yeah, these are the books that we're going to call our New Testament. Um, but it wasn't quite the fight that people will make it out to be. But now, you know, thinking about this, the original collection of, of manuscripts, let's think from the New Testament perspective, John wrote the last book, probably 90 A.D., 100 A.D., would have been the book of Revelation. So then it's done, right? All the books are written. From that point on, it's about distributing copies. And so tonight we're going to talk about this process known as transmission. And that is, how do we go from having 66 books to where now we have copies so that you can have a copy and you can have a copy and, and I can have a copy. And that's this process known as transmission. Okay. Think about why you would want to do that. Why would you want to transmit the originals? Not a trick question. I got the answer on the board, too, by the way. <laughs> it's kind of a twofold thing. One of the things that they wanted to do was preserve this information for future use. We've got to make sure that we have backups. In case one gets destroyed, we have other things. If, if all you had was a single document and you never actually copied it, if something were to happen, a flood, a fire, an invasion, then it's gone forever. And so we've got to preserve this. We've got to make sure that centuries down the road, they still have this. And so one of them's simply security, right? I mean, it's like what we do on our computers. I got to back up all my files because if my computer crashes tomorrow, I don't want to lose this information. And so we back up our computers. And so there's that, that, that aspect, okay, I need to back this up. But then there's also the concept of distributing it. We got churches in, in Achaia, we got churches in Macedonia, we got churches in Rome, we got the church in Jerusalem. Everybody needs a copy of this because they need to hear the message just as we need to hear the message. And so you have this idea of distributing. So we need to preserve the information and we need to distribute it. Do you think, do you think God anticipated this or... You know, to say it another way, do you think God expected this? Sure, right? This was... Stink. I think I left... I, I put my Bible in the auditorium and I left it in there. Did you do this one? Uh, I, I just do it off my phone, even though it's the month of February and it's <laughs> BYOD. <laughs> If you go back, this is really interesting, if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, we're going to go to chapter 17, which is, which, this is a very interesting passage anyways. If you think about where we are in the time of Deuteronomy, this is a part of the Old Testament, it was a law. This is the fifth book of the Bible, so we call that grouping of the five, we call that the Pentateuch. Moses is the author. He's written Genesis, talking about the beginnings. He's written the book of Exodus, how they left Egypt. He, talk, he wrote the book of Leviticus, which gave them God's law to follow. He wrote the book of Numbers, and now he's writing Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is like the second law. It's like kind of at the end of his life, he's... He's reminding them of everything that God has done. He's reminding them of what the law is. And he comes to Deuteronomy 17. Talk about some divine inspiration and forethought. You get to verse 14. Now, at this point in their history, they're being ruled by Moses, if you will. Moses was the leader. Um, and in verse 14, he says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then you say... I will set a king over, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. 
You know, it's funny because then you get to the book of Samuel and then you hear this whole conversation about the nation of Israel wanting a king. It's like Moses is predicting that this is going to happen several hundred years before. But he, So anyways, it's this concept of, of picking a king. He said, the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Okay? Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has, your God has said to you, you shall never return that way. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Okay, so Moses is setting some guidelines for the king. Not too many wives, not too much silver or gold, not too many horses. And then verse 18, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So what Moses is saying is that when the king becomes king, you know, when, when, whenever the kingdom is transferred to a new king, the king is supposed to sit down and in his own hand write a copy of the law and then have that copy approved by the Levitical priests to ensure that it's done properly. So the king was supposed to have his own personal copy of the law. Right? He's, he's transmitting scripture. He's following this process that king then has a copy for his own use, you know, and it serves multiple purposes. The, the concept of writing it embeds those things in his mind and makes sure he understands what the God is requiring of him, and then he has that copy to refer back to. Um, and so it goes on to 19, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of, his, of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so God intended for his words to be copied for their use. And so the expectation is, you know, let's preserve this word, let's distribute this word, so that we may have this word and obey the word. Didn't you say the kings didn't do that? No, they didn't do it. They 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 didn't, <laughs> which was part of the problem. They didn't follow very many of those. No, they didn't really. <laughs> they pretty much broke all of them. They broke all of them. Now, and in, in thinking about this whole concept, that many of this is transpiring well before the printing press printing presses in the 1400s. So a lot of this work of transmission is done by hand. Okay? Copying by hand. But you know, when you think about it, and I love this quote from author Brian Edwards, he said, it would be a strange sort of God who gave an infallible scripture to the original writers and then left copyists to confuse the revelation to such an extent that it became quite unintelligible. So we do not believe that people who copied the scripture are inspired. Okay, We're not saying that they are divinely inspired to copy them. These are humans. Right? They're subject to the same mistakes that we're subject to. What we're saying, though, is, and, and this is my belief as well, that I believe if God intended for us to have his word and his revelation, and he took you know, the initiative to inspire authors to write it, I believe he preserves it for future generations and for us to use. And so I think if you look out throughout the years, throughout the centuries, God has superintended. He still providentially made sure that his word would be transmitted. And we're going to see that people make mistakes, Small errors have crept into various manuscripts, but we're going to see that, that the, those errors are quite minor and that they're really inconsequential. And we're going to see why we can have even faith that what we're holding today is what the original authors intended for us to have. Okay, Because God wanted to reveal himself to us. So let's look at this from the aspect of the Old Testament, and then we'll look at the aspect of the New Testament. And... Uh, That'll be, that'll be what we have for tonight.
The challenge with some of this is, is it's, it's kind of information heavy, and so um, I hope I don't, you know, wear you out mentally from dumping information on you. And, and I also want to say that I am by no means an expert in any of this, okay? I, I cannot, I've never practiced textual criticism, and um, what, I'm, what I'm simply relaying to you is information that I've just pieced together and learned from, from some other books. So the story of the Old Testament is quite, uh, quite meticulous. You're going to see that these guys were serious when they came to copying the scripture. Uh, we talked about this last time that the Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament, was pretty universally accepted. The books, people knew what books were supposed to be in there. People widely accepted that. But it did get its rubber stamp from this Council of Jamnia, which is uh, near modern-day Tel Aviv. They confirmed what the canon of the Old Testament would, would be. Okay, That later, that became known as the Masoretic Text. And the, and the Masoretes were a group of people. So these were scholarly Jews working in this particular location, Tiberias, which is on the western shore of Galilee. Now, what we sometimes forget is what ancient literature and ancient alphabets were like. Our modern-day alphabets and writing styles are, are, tend to be a lot more systematic. We, we use punctuation. That hasn't always been the case. Um, sometimes they wrote in all capitals. Sometimes the shapes of the letters were irregular. Hebrew didn't have vowels. Okay, so the Hebrew language didn't have vowels, and so you can imagine some of the variation there. And so these particular scholars uh, took it upon themselves to add vowels to the Hebrew words. Um, they actually fixed the shape of the letters to kind of uniformly create the Hebrew shapes. They actually were the ones who divided the text into words and paragraphs. And they actually created the present verse divisions that we have. Okay, when, when Moses wrote Genesis or Deuteronomy, he didn't put chapters and verses in there. He wrote it like a modern author would write, like if you were going to write an email or you were going to write a letter. Chapters and verses were added later to make it easier to copy and easier to find and read passages. And so when you're looking at the Old Testament, it was these Masoretes who were the ones who then added some of these verse distinctions in. Now, when they copied the Bible, and, and their work was done about 8,900, by the way. 800 years later? Yeah. Wow. 800 years to complete all of that. And, and do we know, I mean, do you, this is, I wouldn't expect you to know this off the here, but just in case you do, the time that passed between Moses and the end of the Old Testament, they say like half of the history was in, up to Abraham, right? Or, no. Um, boy, we're returning in, in terms of dates. But, and, I, and I don't need to know, but my point is, if you think about thousands of years, which oh, yeah. the, the, the changes in the language in that time right. would, would require that. Right. Be, yeah, but you think about the changes in English. Yeah. Over decades, yeah, but even then, you know, from centuries, yeah. So the language, yeah, the language. From Moses to, yeah, 100 AD and, and beyond. Yep. Yeah, that's a great point. So these people, these Masoretes, would make copies, okay, and and they had the strictest job requirements that you could imagine. <laughs> if I had to work under these conditions, I don't know that I would have survived. Um, they regulated the scroll size that they wrote on, okay, in terms of the dimensions. They regulated the spacing between the letters and the spacing between the words. They regulated ink color. Uh, they regulated the clothes that they wore when they actually carried out these particular functions. So I guess in some respects it was a uniform, but they were very meticulous in what they wore and how often they would change them. What they would do then is when they had this scroll done, one of the ways that they would fact check is they would count all of the words on the page. And so if I have my copy and, and I have my original, 
you know, I count the number of words on my original, and then I count the number of words on my copy. And so that's within they they kept counts of what I was supposed to have, and and if they did, they didn't have the same number of words, then they would have to destroy that scroll, and and do it again. Okay, and so oof, that's a bad day right there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Right, yeah, they they didn't have red lines under the words or green green lines, green squiggly lines. They had they had your quality control lab, right? They they had guys whose job it was to review, and so you know once the scrolls were done, they would compare the originals with the uh, the copy and um, destroy any if errors were found. So you get the whole thing done, you know. If there's an error, then they would destroy it. And that's how they kept bad copies from getting into circulation, or at least substantially minimized right. when bad copies would get into circulation. Uh, and, and surprisingly, and, I, and sometimes this is interesting to me, if they would take they would take poor quality documents or scrolls and they would take them out of circulation. So uh, when one copy had been carefully checked, the older copy from which it was taken was destroyed. Which, you know, I, I, I can see, you know, I guess it's a little counterintuitive because you'd think you'd want the more copies. So let's not destroy this one because, you know, now where I had one, I now have two. And now where I have two, I'm going to have four. And you would think, right? But they didn't always keep the one that they copied from. Once it was deemed that the copy was good, they would destroy the old one. Um, because ink would fade. Yeah. And then words became hard to read. And once the words became too hard to read, then you wouldn't want to copy from it. And so pages, you know, scrolls would get torn. And, and so it was not good to keep some of these older scrolls in circulation so they would destroy them. Okay, so they, they very strongly regulated copies that they had and how they actually obtained those things. Um, so that was, that was what they did, you know, from 100 to 900. Fast forward a thousand years, okay? A thousand years, <laughs> 1947 is when we uncovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these are a collection of manuscripts that were contained in clay pots found in a cave. Um, I think it was a shepherd boy out throwing rocks into a cave and he heard something crash. I'm not going to figure out what that is. And he goes in there and he finds these clay pots. I mean, can you imagine how cool this would have been? Inside the clay pots were scrolls. The dates of these scrolls are 100 years before Christ. Okay? These manuscripts were 2,000 years old. These were dated 100 years before Christ. Uh, these scrolls contain parts of every book of the Old Testament except Esther. And it actually had a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. I think that's kind of interesting. There's a lot of prophecies of Christ in the book of Isaiah. Right, right. And when Christ got up, remember the story when he gets up, he's starting his earthly ministry, and, and he goes to the synagogue, and as tradition, somebody, some male from the synagogue would stand up and read a scroll. Remember, he opens up to the book of Isaiah, and he reads them a portion of Isaiah. So I think it's kind of cool that this copy that's dated 100 years before Christ had a complete copy of Isaiah. I just think it's kind of neat. Where was this cave located? Uh, near the Dead Sea, I believe. Yeah, that's, so some, it's like the Essenes, they think, right? Were these people in the Jewish history that would kind of separate themselves? So some people think John the Baptist was an Essene. Yeah. Because he lived out in the wilderness and they... Right. And so they had copied it and they'd stored it in the cave. And then, you know, somehow when they flooded that area, they left those there and no one ever found them for 2,000 years, right? But think about how cool that is because now you have copies of the manuscripts from, from what, 100 BC. And in 1947, we had modern English versions of the, of the Old Testament. And we have Hebrew manuscripts from which those English versions were obtained. And now you can sit down and you can say, what was the manuscript like 100 years before Christ? And what's the manuscripts like now? And you could compare them. And the similarity was remarkable. Okay, 
meaning that 2,000 years of copying did not lose the integrity of the Old Testament. That's pretty cool. Which I think, I think is divine evidence yeah. of what you said, that God will preserve it. God, exactly. Yeah. God will preserve it. Because that, that, you know, you play the telephone game around the room and you're not going to have that kind of... Yeah, <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> and and not only will he preserve it, but it's kind of cool because you can kind of think about maybe he, he, he intentionally or ordained for those things to be left right. so they could be found 2,000 years later mm-hmm. so that we would have the privilege of doing the comparison Invalidating. and saying, yeah. Right. It's, you not, know. Not, it's not a blind faith. It's yeah, a, it's exactly. A, you know. Okay, so any, any, any questions, comments on that from the Old Testament standpoint? The New Testament's a little bit of a different story. It, it did not necessarily get transmitted with the same scrutiny or at least regulations, if you will, as, as the Old Testament. There, there wasn't a group of scholars that necessarily set themselves apart and regulated you know, ink color and scroll sizes and clothing. Um, the situation was a little different. The, these documents were in high demand. We, we have churches popping up, right? In the book of Acts, new believers and new churches cropping up, and we need to get, we need to get the word of God to them, and we've got to get Paul's letters copied so that these people have them. So it was in a high demand. Of course, everything was being done by hand, but you can think that there was probably a lot of interruptions. Persecution was quite high. You know, it was, it was somewhat dangerous sometimes to have copies of these or to be found copying them. So they were often interrupted. Um, you know, Rome, Rome falls and Rome destroys Jerusalem in 70 AD. Any works that could have been present, you know, people are carrying them out with them as they, they run or, or do whatever. And so it was a lot more of a different situation. It wasn't until Emperor Constantine began like government sanctioning of copying that things became a lot more um, meticulous. And so that would have happened somewhat in 300 ADs. So it's not to say, we're going to look and see, it's not to say that anything we have before that is bad, but that was when Emperor Constantine gave the mandate, let's make copies. And so since it's coming down from the emperor, we can take all the time we need, we can set aside the people we need, and we can make sure that it's, it's going to be done. And what we're going to see is that we have a tremendous amount of manuscripts, either complete or pieces. And again, when you take all of these pieces and you start comparing them, you're going to see that we can have tremendous confidence in the scriptures that we have. Okay? Now, when you think about it, we often kind of forget about this, too. They didn't have paper. And that's a problem because, you know, They'll use what they have. We'll use whatever material we can have, but they didn't always, the ink quality wasn't good, the the paper wasn't good. Most of the original documents were probably written on papyrus, which was a a plant-based material, or parchment would have been animal skin. Okay, and I guess I should have taken C above. I forgot to remove that um, from a previous point, so you can ignore the C above comment there. Those would have been the original original material that they would have written on. It's kind of a little bit of a similar story. Not quite. The Greek wasn't quite as bad as, as trying to do the ancient Hebrew. But most of the writing at that time, kind of that first century to about the sixth century, was all done with capital letters and no punctuation and not much spacing between words. Okay, And that has a, and that has a, a, a textual criticism term. Um, you can see there in parentheses, I think it would be pronounced uncial. Okay. That doesn't mean anything to me, so mm-hmm. <laughs> don't, don't feel lost either. Um, but you can kind of see that that makes it a little challenging at times then to try to figure out, even to this day when we're translating, where does the word end and the next word begin, or where does the sentence end and the next sentence begin? And so, you know, there's, there can be at times a little bit of uncertainty and a little bit of discussion and maybe differences of opinions, which is why, you know, some of our even English translations might have 
slight differences and things, and there'll be a little footnote at the bottom and say, you know, the manuscript from which this is taken, or blah, 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 right? But you get about the 7th or 8th centuries, then the Greek manuscripts were put into small letters. Okay, they started using capitals and lowercase. You started adding punctuations, starting making clear distinctions in the words and clear divisions in the paragraphs and in the, the vernacular of the textual criticism that's called the minuscule there. And so oftentimes, if you were to go read a book on some of the New Testament manuscripts, you'll see these words all the time, the unciole and the minuscule. And we have both types of manuscripts today. Okay, you, can, you can find pieces of um, unciole and pieces of minuscule. You can see, you can find, we have some of the original papyrus. We have some of the original parchments. We have um, all of those things, copies that are available to us today. Now, I have given you... Uh, overall chart here we'll talk about various things on this we won't necessarily pour through every detail of this I added this in after I emailed out the slides today so I need to I need to send out an updated copy of my slides which contains this image I found this on the internet okay so I'm, I'm trusting the source here some of the things that we're going to talk about you'll find on here, um, and so you can refer back to that as we go through this. So here's a couple, I, I thought it'd be interesting just to put a couple of the things that we have. In other words, what, what different papyrus manuscripts we have, what different parchment manuscripts we have, and by, me, by no means is this an exhaustive list, okay? We're gonna see that we have over 5,000 different pieces or complete manuscripts. And so I'm just highlighting a couple that I thought were interesting from a historical standpoint, as well as um, something that we can gain confidence from. So Chester, the Chester Beatty Papyra, that is, that's named after the people who, um, who discovered it. So in this particular one, it contains most of the New Testament, and it's dated to about the third century or earlier. Okay, so that's a pretty, that would be a pretty old manuscript of the Greek New Testament. You're talking, you know, 300 years after the life of Christ. We have a complete copy, that, that papyrus contained a complete copy of the New Testament. You have the John Rylands papyrus, which is dated within the first half of the second century. You're talking somewhere between 100 and 150 AD. And uh, one of the things that's very interesting from that is John's gospel was in it. And this particular papyrus was probably written in the Egypt area. And so think about that, that, that in Egypt was a copy of John's Gospel within 50 years after John wrote it. All right? Within 50 years after he wrote the Gospel, there was a copy in, in Egypt. So they were obviously already accepting it as Gospel. Right. Unfully intended. Again, exactly. Um, that early. And, and so, so there, there's a lot of people who have, in the last couple you know, decades or whatever, said John's Gospel wasn't, accept, wasn't written... You know, it's, it's erroneous because it wasn't written until a couple hundred years later, but, but you have copies of John's Gospel in Egypt within 50 years of its writing, contradicting the heresy that it wasn't available. Okay? And you think about, think about the span now. You, the span between the original and the copies is so close that that begins to give you even more credibility into the accuracy because it wasn't like some, it wasn't like there's thousands of years between the copy and the, and the first original. So I think it's pretty fascinating. Just a couple of the uh, codices, as they, they're called. Codex, C-O-D-E-X, is a Latin word that means tablet. And these were manuscripts written on parchment, so it's animal product, animal skin. 
a couple of the ones that are available for us to see today, the Codex Sinaiticus, I guess is how you would say that. It was something we discovered in 1859. It's dated to about the 4th century. Okay, so even again, that's another cool thing. I, this thing is written in the 4th century. We don't find it again for another 1,600 years, which is pretty cool. And it contains part of the Old Testament and the entire New Testament. Okay. So that's what 4th century is 300 to 3 to technically 300 to 399. It was in that early 300s that the canon of the New Testament was rubber stamped to say these are our books. So this this copy, these manuscripts were written during that time, you know, after things had been canonized and so it can, it contained the entire New Testament. There's one called the Codex Vaticanus. Um, I think that's supposed to be Ben. Yeah, been in the Vatican since 1481. You can go to the Vatican. This this manuscript is stored in the Vatican. Okay. It's believed to be among the 50 copies of the Greek New Testament that the Emperor Constantine ordered. So, you know, remember a couple slides ago I said that the New Testament copying process really became more regulated when Emperor Constantine ordered that to be done. This is believed to be a copy, one of the copies that he ordered. So he ordered 50 copies. It's believed that this one that's in the Vatican is, was one of those. So you could maybe go to the Vatican today, see this copy that it doesn't have the apocryphal. <laughs> <laughs> one, one could do that. One could do that. It may be a smart enough thing to do. But... Now, if you look on your chart here, you can see that the Vaticanus here on this chart says it's thought to have been written in the first century, and so there's a little little ambiguity there, because um, I, I believe that this is the same codex here. Then it was lost, and then it was found by the Catholic Church in 1475. Um, interestingly enough, they, they did not make it available for translation, apparently until after 1867. You know, in other words, people who wanted to translate an English Bible couldn't go use that document as one one of the things they translated from. So I don't I don't necessarily understand the distinction. Some people believed that it was from Emperor Constantine. It could be that that's what the Roman Catholic Church is saying, because it ties it back to the Emperor of Rome. I don't know, or I don't know which one of those is is, is accurate there. Um, the one, the the Codex Sinaiticus. How would you say that? Sinaiticus. Sinaiticus. I guess. You can see that here. Uh, that one's down on the bottom. It's thought to have been written there. It got lost. You can see it was found uh, at the monastery of Saint Catherine at Mount Sinai in about 1859. And that's one of the documents is that is used, translated by the NIV and the NASB and some of the other modern translations. It's a primary, one of the primary sources for that. That'd be the better argument because that's old and new. There's nothing in between. Yeah. The other one was just new, you said, right? The, yeah, the right. Vaticanus. Yeah. Of course, um, the interesting thing about the, the top one and what I would want to go back and check it's possible that the Old Testament in that top one would have been a Greek copy of the Old Testament. It may not have been, may not have been the original Hebrew, right? So that could have been. So the 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 Hebrew of the Old Testament was translated into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. So that could have been maybe a Greek copy of the Old Testament and not an original Hebrew. Um, similarly, on your, I thought I had this in the notes. I may have, I may have deleted it out. One of these other codex was the Alex, Alexandrius, which was a parchment written, copied in the first century. It got lost, and then in the year 1078, 
Alexandrus presented this, I believe, to the King of England. I believe King Charles I was the recipient of that. They gave it to him. And then they they held that document, and then it became available for use in 1775. The English, English allowed us. I believe you can go to one, the British Library and see that, that document. Okay, so these are just some of them, just some of the documents that we have available to us. sense that they, somebody would have copied it in the Greek and it would have been all, all in that language. Now I want um, I want to talk about something this is, this may feel a little out of place just um, just at the moment but bear with me there's something that's called the text textus receptus which would be received text. And uh, it'll become kind of clear why this is important as we move forward, but it but also gives us a bunch of information on on how some of these manuscripts came to be. Um, this is a Greek manuscript, a copy that was written from other Greek manuscripts. Okay, and so it's a copy of some copies. The reason why this is going to become important is because this is the primary source for the King James version of the Bible, as we're going to see. And this will get to the heart of the discussion as to why some people are King James only. Okay, You'll often hear them talk about the Texas Receptus. Um, but it's kind of interesting. Talking about this gives us an, another glimpse into the history of how some of these things happen. So that's why I kind of thought it was interesting. So in the year 1453, you have the fall of Constantinople. This would have been in the Crusades. So is the Islamic forces take Constantinople, the Christian scholars flee, and with them they carry priceless Greek manuscripts. Okay, so they're, they're fleeing from the city, they're grabbing their valuables. These Christian scholars are grabbing the Greek manuscripts that they have at that time and you know, fleeing to wherever they're going to flee. Now, as you already know, there's Greek manuscripts that weren't found yet. Some of these manuscripts we've already talked about weren't discovered until the 1800s. So, so these are documents that these Christian scholars had in that, in that time. So ab about 50 years later, you have this individual whose name, whose last name, I'm just going to call him by his last name, that's how he's known as Erasmus. He published a Greek New Testament based on five of the Greek manuscripts that came out of Constantinople. Okay, so he's making a copy of copies, which is perfectly fine, right? That's something we have to do. And all of the Greek manuscripts that he made his Greek copy from were dated from the 12th century. Okay? So we know that we have manuscripts written in the 1st century. We've got copies that are being made in the first couple hundred years. We've got copies being made in the 12th century, you know. We're, we're making these copies and these copies, but if it's being, being done properly, those should reflect the original documents. He was, a, from, from all historical accounts, a, a, a pretty brilliant Greek scholar. Okay? So he undertook the task of doing this. Now, he was basing it off of five Greek manuscripts. So he, you know, you can you can imagine he's sitting there at his desk. He's got five Greek manuscripts around him. Uh, he's he's working on a particular passage. You know, he'll read to see what this Greek manuscript says and what this one says and what this one says. You know, if they all say the same thing, then that's a pretty easy thing to copy. If there's some variation, then he's got to decide which of the manuscripts might be a little bit more accurate. But he ran into some problems because. There would be pieces, he, he, the, the manuscripts he had lacked certain pieces, and there would be times where all five manuscripts lacked certain passages. And so when he ran into that problem, what he did was he went back to a manuscript called the Latin Vulgate, which is from the 4th century. This was a work where the, the um, original manuscripts were translated into Latin. So he took that and he put them back into Greek. So that's not, it's not ideal, 
right? He's taking something that was Greek, that went to Latin, now he's putting it back in the Greek. Um, so it's not necessarily what you would want to do, but it's basically the only thing he had available to him at this time. There's not a lot of that, is there? No. I mean, there's just a few verses, or yeah, yeah. So, but but see, he's he's only got five manuscripts. Right. Now we don't have that problem now. Oh. Because okay. we have like five thousand okay. plus manuscripts. I thought there were still a couple verses in our English Bible that are not in the Greek. Am I wrong? Uh, like the, there 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 are some passages where, yes. Okay, but that's not what we're talking about. Well, here. it gets into this okay. because there's a couple places. So. If, if you also know what's going on in history, Erasmus is like the arch enemy of Martin Luther. These guys, they were like Trump and Pelosi. <laughs> uh, except in the theological world. And, and so I think they, they didn't see eye to eye on some things. And there were certain verses that ended up in there that I think Martin Luther, I think he, I think he said, I'll give 200 whatever the monetary unit was, if anybody can find me a Greek manuscript that actually contains this passage. Okay. All right, so there was, <laughs> there, was some, there was some places where stuff may have gotten into these manuscripts that weren't okay. necessarily in the majority of Greek manuscripts. Now, he... he and, and this is, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no. This is still what produced the Textus Receptus. Yes. This is how we got, okay. Yes. Yeah, this is this is leading up to it. Now he would make he, he he ultimately made a couple revisions. So that would have been his first edition. He ultimately ended up making up to a fourth edition, which you know is is about nine years later. And in fairness to him, now he has some additional Greek manuscripts that became available. I believe some of that allowed him to pull out a little bit of this that he took from the Latin Vulgate. Okay, so you have. You have this now in 1527. Along comes another guy. His name is Robert. Um, I don't know how you would say that. It's French, if anybody speaks French. Uh, he comes along, and he takes that, and he, he prints an edition of this in, in, in 1550, and that is what we would now consider to be this manuscript called the Texas Receptus, which is the received text. Okay. Now, um, those things became the basis of our first English New Testament written by Tyndale. Obviously, Tyndale in 1527 didn't have the one written by Robert uh, Einstein. He was, really, he was using more of the stuff coming out from Erasmus. But remember a couple of weeks ago when I read the story of William Tyndale, that's the manuscript he was using, his Greek manuscript, which he put into English, ultimately then was killed for, burned at the stake for doing that, right? And then it was the and then this was the basis for the King James Version in sixteen eleven. Okay. Um, if you ever it, there are people who would be consumed what we call King James only. Okay, they believe the only version of the English Bible you should ever read is the King James Bible. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the King James Bible, okay? So please don't misunderstand me, but they, they believe that's the only, only English Bible you should have. This is part of the basis for that. They, they, they believe that the Texas Receptus has some level of inspiration to it, if you will, that it's the only manuscript that God ordained, inspired. And so this is often a lot of times what they'll go back to when you're when you're talking to them. Um, but the, but I think the problem is is since that time we've found thousands of additional Greek manuscripts. May not be the full thing, may be just pieces, but we've discovered so many more manuscripts that it's, it's kind of like, is it the scholarly thing to do to, to, to ignore all these other fragments and manuscripts and focus all on this Texas Receptus? Or is the appropriate thing to do to take everything as a whole? And so that's where some of that debate, the debate happens. Currently, there's 5,488 Greek texts that have been cataloged 
and studied and available for use. Okay? If you go back to this chart, this kind of outlines some of those things. Um, you know, Erasmus Greek manuscript compiled from the Byzantine text. So, one one other piece of information, not to uh, at the at the risk of overloading, some of the manuscripts are from Byzantine, which is Syria. Many of our early manuscripts are from Rome, and some are from Egypt, Alexandria, because those were the pockets where scholars lived. If you study, if you study a lot of that early church history, um, or or world history, Rome. It was a center for scholars. Alexandria, Egypt, was where many Christian scholars lived. And you have the Library of Egypt, and you have these scholarly guys with access to documents and writing. And then the other is the Syrians or the Byzantines. So we we kind of trace our Greek manuscripts back to one of those three locations. And so Erasmus was using documents that came from the Byzantine text. Ultimately, this is what the King James Bible is based on, whereas the NASB and the NIV and some of these others are relying on some of the other texts that we now have available to us. Which predate some of the Byzantine texts. Which really do. Yeah, yeah. they do, right? So, I, I, I think there's a pretty strong argument to be made that we should take all of the available text because the more text we take... More accurate, they should be, but you'll find that that debate exists. Are, okay. Within the books themselves, with the different translations, are there major differences of concern the way they've translated something? So that's a great question. Give me just a couple minutes, and we'll be we'll be right there, and that'll be what we end on here tonight. Um, so I, I again, I want to I want to bring back. Just to make sure we, we remember this, we don't have any of the original manuscripts. Okay, we don't have that actual one piece of paper that the Apostle Paul sat down and wrote on, or it would have been, you know, parchment or papyrus. You know, we don't have the actual copy written by the hand of Peter. We don't we don't have them for any of the Bible, none of the books. Okay. We don't have them. Now on the one hand, it would be really cool if we did, from a historical, you know, because I always get kind of get, you know, the chills when you stand over the de- the Declaration of Independence. You think, ah, oh, this was actually signed by these guys. That'd be kind of cool. And Paul actually wrote this, and, and certainly that would remove all doubt in terms of the authenticity of the document. But you can imagine, on the flip side, the issues it might actually cause if you have these documents, and people actually worship the actual document itself rather than the word of God coming out of it or you can imagine the fights that would ensue and, and lots of other things so it, it might be just as well that we don't have the original documents but what we can do because we have so many copies and we can compare them we can have a high degree of accuracy and so let's let's look at your question one quote before we get there it's a straightforward matter of fact that there is no piece of ancient literature so well attested as the Bible, with copies that are closer to the original autographs. So let's look at this table for just a second. This is a compilation of many different ancient works. You have the date that they were written, and you have the date of the earliest copy. So for example, talked a lot about Homer's Iliad, second from the bottom. Homer wrote that in 900 B.C. The earliest copy we possess today was written in 400 B.C. Okay, so so 500 years. I'm not saying that there weren't copies between there. There could have been. We just don't have them. So the earliest copy we have was 500 years after the actual work was written. So 500 years. It's really not. It's really. I mean, when you look at some of the like the works of Plato. There's 12,000 years, or 1,200 years between when he actually wrote them and the first copy we have. Right. The longer the time, the less confidence you can really have that it's accurate, right? Because 
you don't know what happened in between. You don't have the copies to, to go back and check. Um, and, and look, we have you know, 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. We have seven copies of the work of Plato prior to you know, the printing press. So, so that, in other words, if I, if I had the, uh, the desire to sit down with the works of Plato and translate them from Greek to English, I've got seven copies to work from. And those copies I have are dated 1,200 years after he originally wrote them. Okay. So, so that's what textual critics are used to working with. They're used to working with a limited number of documents spanning long time. And then they sit down with those seven documents and they kind of have to look over all seven of them and say, okay, here's where they're all similar. Here's where they're a little different. This is, where I, this is what I think he meant. I think this one might be a small error, and that's what he's working with. So the New Testament has 5,000 on the order of 5,600 Greek manuscripts. Could be complete, could be partial. And then, in addition to that, you can kind of see down in the bottom, there are 19,000 copies in Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic, language, or, um, Aramaic languages. Because you have... Coptics would be the Egyptian Christians, right? They're, they're actually translating the Greek into English, or sorry, into Egyptian very early on. You have um, it being translated into Latin. So some of that, all, all those translations were being done very early, and so you can even use some of those to compare. They say the accuracy of the New Testament copies is 99.5%. If you were to compare all of those manuscripts, the similarity between them is, is extremely high compared to the Iliad, which is about 95%. Which isn't bad. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying 95 is mean, bad. the only other one that we have any... Yeah, the, the only other data is listed for that. Then there are also no originals of any of those other Correct. Ones. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have any of those originals. So these are the kind of errors that you'll have fine crept in. And these are pretty standard copying errors you can imagine people making. And the, those are the actual, you know, terms for them. Didography, writing twice, what have should have been written once, so you double up a letter, latter instead of later. Um, fission, were they improperly dividing one word into two? Nowhere to now here. And you can see that being a problem, especially if they weren't using spacings between the words and punctuations and things like that. Fusion, improperly combining two words into one, therein, right, becomes therein. Um, most of these don't have significant changes in the way the sentence is read or the meaning of the sentence. Homophony, writing a word with the same pronunciation but different meaning. Uh, metathesis, improperly exchanging the order of two letters. You know, common things that you would do if you were writing and you're getting tired and can't concentrate and stuff like that. I think more importantly to note that we're talking about, you know, small word changes. It's not like we're talking about huge changes in meaning. And so when the scholars look at all of these changes that have that exist between the manuscripts, you would say that less than 1% of all the variations have anything to do with a doctrinal or theological subject, okay? Because they can be minor words. Maybe it's a conjunction. Maybe it's the way the preposi you know the prepositional phrase is stated. We're quite confident that no doctrine or historical fact is affected by any of these variations. Um, I mean, you can clearly see this with the way that Jesus used the Old Testament. Obviously. You know, you could debate, well, that may not be the same with the New Testament, but, but in the, Jesus and the apostles quite heavily leaned on the Old Testament in their teaching, the historical accuracy of, of various people like Adam and Eve and Noah and David and all these individuals. They, um, 
they believed it, they quoted it, they taught about it, and they would have had right the same level of historical criticism, textual criticism from the Old Testament as we would now today from the New Testament. So, so we can be quite confident then that what we have today is what the original authors wanted us to have. Right. So I know that's a lot of dates, a lot of information. I apologize for that. Um, hopefully you at least have some idea of, of the things that went on to bring us our Bible. And, and you can thank these godly people for the blood, sweat, and tears that they poured into doing these copies. It would have been tedious work, but they did it because they believed in not only securing, backing up, but also distributing it, and were the, benefact, the benefactors of that today, right? It's quite, quite amazing. Again, if you're interested in any, any of these things, there's plenty of books on the subject to read and, and to dig into that. Any questions? Okay. Well, thank you for braving the weather and coming out. So it's good to see everybody, and I hope you have a safe trip home. Take it nice and slow. Get home safe. Although it's probably 45 out there now, and everything's melting, and then... Yeah. All right, well, I'll close this in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Lord God, we are just so grateful, and just thinking about all that you have done as you work in the lives of people to accomplish your plan. It is truly amazing. We think about the fact that we are the recipients of this blessing as we can hold your word and we can study it. And uh, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Lord, I pray as we go about our week, we would be prepared to love on people and to be ready with an answer as they might engage us in these questions. And, and uh, Lord, I pray we would do what we can to spread the gospel and to glorify your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome.